We're in John 18, starting at uh, verse 28. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early. And they themselves did not enter into the praetorium, so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Therefore Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. So Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews said to him, We are not permitted to put anyone to death to fulfill the words of Jesus which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. Therefore Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative, or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting, so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I release someone for you at Passover. Do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him slaps in the face. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify, crucify. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid, and he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you, and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of the preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. So they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he handed him over to them to be crucified. Dear Lord, we uh, thank you for loving us so much that you sent your son. And thank you for this, this passage that talks about the handing over of your son. Uh, uh, we can barely comprehend this, Lord. Thank you for loving us that much. Lord, I pray that you would use Tom today 
to open our eyes to this passage, help him to explain it to us, Lord, help us to take away what you would have us to take away, Lord. In the name of Jesus. Good morning. This is uh, quite a passage. This is the most momentous day in the history of God's creation, in the history of mankind, certainly, of his dealings with mankind. Before we dig into this passage further, there's, I want to make sure we kind of get the timeline here because some of the language that's used in John's Gospel can be confusing if we don't understand how, how some shorthand words are used. Um, my position on this closely follows that of uh, D.A. Carson. Uh, this is an outstanding commentary uh, on John. The other Gospel accounts indicate that the Passover observance occurred on Thursday on this particular year, the year of Jesus' death. And it was on that same night, Thursday night, that the Passover meal was taken by all Jews. And it was that night, in conjunction with that Passover meal, that Jesus celebrated the very first, presented the first Lord's Supper with His disciples as the remembrance of Him, of His death, and uh, looking forward to his return. Mark 14 uh, makes that about as clear as possible, that that was Passover night when the Lord's Supper was first observed. But here in John 18, verse 28, John says that when the Jewish authorities brought Jesus before Pilate the next morning, Friday morning, he says they did not enter the praetorium in order that they might not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. So was the Passover meal observed on Thursday or Friday? Well, D.A. Carson explains that the word Passover was often used as shorthand for the entire seven-day feast of Passover and unleavened bread that began on the 14th day of the month of Nisan and continued with meal observances each night until the 21st day of the month. So the phrase, eat the Passover, became shorthand for eating the unleavened bread each of those nights. Okay? In chapter 19, verse 14, as Pilate was just about to deliver Jesus over to the executioners to be crucified, Friday, around noon, John says, now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. And once again, I believe he's using shorthand, and in this case, shorthand for the Sabbath that occurred during the Passover observance. It was the day of preparation. In fact, that was frequent, frequently used terminology, the day of preparation for the Sabbath. And the preparation for the Sabbath happened all day Friday because the Sabbath started Friday at twilight and lasted until Saturday at twilight. That happened every week. This was a high holy day because the Sabbath occurred in the midst of the Passover observance when the city was flowing over with Jewish pilgrims who had come from all over the Roman kingdom. I believe that that is borne out rather clearly in chapter 19, verse 31, which is talking about what happened at the end of the process of the crucifixion of three men at Golgotha, Jesus and the criminals on each side. And in that passage, John is explaining why the Romans really at the instigation of the Jews, were so anxious to get those three men off the crosses that day. And it says, John says, 
The Jews, therefore, this is John 19.31, because it was the day of preparation so that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Friday was the preparation day for the Sabbath that occurred during the Passover week. I know that it can, this can be very confusing, but the point is, when you tie this pa- these passages together with what you find in the other three Gospels, that makes sense of all of it. Thursday was Passover proper, when the Passover meal was celebrated, when the Lord's Supper happened. Friday was the preparation day for the Sabbath that fell during the Passover observance. Okay? And if you've got that, that's, if you don't have that, it's not life and death, but it does help to understand what's going on. Now, on with the passage. <laughs> I want you to picture a courtroom scene in a court that hears only the highest level felony cases. The judge calls the prosecuting attorney to present his case against the defendant. The prosecutor stands up and he says, Judge, we already had our own trial last night offline, and this has all been settled. We have a long list of accusations against this man for all kinds of violations, and we know that they're not violations of your law, but they are violations of our law, and they're really serious. And just a little forewarning here, we don't really have any witnesses. Uh, you're just going to have to take our word for it. Uh, We'll tell you ourselves what the eyewitnesses told us. They weren't very good, but they did tell us a few things. And there won't be any witnesses at all in support of the defendant. There's no reason to bother with looking for any of those. Judge, this man is evil, and he deserves to die. If he were not evil, we wouldn't have brought him to you. And that's really all you need to know. That and... The fact that if this doesn't go our way, we're going to make sure that you get into a truckload of trouble and we know exactly how to make that happen. We should also let you know that we're up against a really, really tight deadline today. So we need to move things along very quickly. And one other thing, we'll only settle for the death sentence. We wouldn't have even bothered with you at all except that we needed your authority to end this with a death sentence. You got all that, judge? Now, if this were a judge who actually cared about truth and justice, how do you think that would have gone over? But see, these Jews didn't have that little complication because Pilate, the judge in this case, really wasn't very devoted to either truth or justice. But God requires both. Truth and justice were on trial that day. In biblical terms, the word truth covers both. A just verdict in a court of law, according to Scripture, is a verdict that matches up with the truth. And that means that the verdict not only corresponds with the real facts of the case, but it reflects the character of God who is the source and the standard and the very essence of truth. That's what the Bible means by truth in a courtroom. 
In Exodus 34, when God declared his character to Moses, he said, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. In John 1, verse 14, in John's prologue to this gospel, he said, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Men, both Jews and Gentiles, pass judgment on the truth on the Good Friday that John records in this passage. The most momentous day in the history of of mankind. Men, both Jews and Gentiles, determined to dispense with the truth. They sentenced the truth to die. Men have been seeking that outcome ever since the very first sin, seeking to suppress the truth in unrighteousness, to exchange the truth of God for a lie that served men's agenda better. But whatever verdict men choose to render against the truth, the truth is unchanged. He is still the truth. For the rest of this morning and next Sunday morning, and yes, I broke this one message up into two again, we are going to consider how the truth was put on trial that first Good Friday morning. And I have three big outline points that we'll cover, we will cover this week and next. We're just going to look at the first one this week. The first is the Jews and the truth. The second is Pontius Pilate and the truth. And the third is Jesus, comma, the truth. When I use the phrase the Jews throughout the rest of this message, I am using that phrase exactly as John does here. I'm talking about the Jews who brought Jesus to Pilate and systematically manipulated both Pilate and the Jewish crowd gathered in Jerusalem to see to it that Jesus was crucified that very day. For a people who prided themselves on justness and devotion to truth and godliness, the magnitude of their corruption of justice, truth, and godliness on this day is absolutely stunning. It's stunning not because it is somehow foreign to the experience of most human beings. That's not the case. It's stunning because we are not accustomed to having the ugliness and the skillful deceitfulness of our hearts so fully exposed as was the case that day. There can be no doubt that God held the Jewish leadership specially accountable for the grotesque denial of truth and justice that played out that day. I could review passage after passage after passage to prove that point. Some would call that anti-Semitic. But that accusation would be utterly ridiculous because the special accountability of the Jews had nothing to do with them being more sinful than the rest of mankind or more guilty of the death of Jesus. The Jews bore a greater accountability because they were better informed than the rest of mankind. One of the great lessons in this passage, for and by the way, from him to whom much has been given, much will be required. 
One of the great lessons in this passage for every human being, Jew or Gentile, is that even those who have been handed every conceivable advantage when it comes to knowing who Jesus is will nonetheless reject Him unless God works a miracle in their hearts. And those who have received the greatest advantage will reject Him with the most extreme prejudice. As John declared in his prologue to this great Gospel, Jesus came unto His own and His own did not receive Him. The Jews, the Jews to whom God had graciously given countless generations of perfectly consistent testimony concerning His promised Messiah through dozens of faithful prophets. You will never find a book like this, beloved. You will never find a book written over a period of nearly a millennium and a half in which the writers all say the same thing about the same person. You can't get two historians to agree on anything. This is a miracle. This is the Word of God given to men through the Jews. Along with that perfectly consistent testimony, this people, the Jews, had witnessed countless real-life miraculous interventions by the mighty hand of God in their national experience over a period of more than 1,500 years. God had graciously given them His law that showed them how the character of God works out in daily life in their relationship with Him and in their relationships with one another. He had given them the tabernacle, the priesthood, the sacrifices, and the covenants all of which pointed in every minute detail to one person. To the Word who had now become flesh and tabernacled among us. The perfect priest, the perfect sacrifice who now stood in bonds before them. The One who would seal every covenant promise that God ever made by the pouring out of His own life's blood that very day. The fact that even those who had received such a compelling witness concerning Jesus would reject Him with such self-righteous zeal shows us how hard the heart of every man is against Christ until and unless God works His miracle of redemption. The fact that both Jews and Gentiles sit together today in this room redeemed freed from the blindness that kept us from seeing and knowing and believing and loving our great God and Savior Jesus Christ is a miracle of the highest level. As we proceed this morning and next week, I pray we will keep that firmly in mind. My brother Scott said something this morning that we should, that it's along the same line. We should bear in mind. Anytime that you have the the sense that somebody else needed more of the blood of Christ than you, you need to back way up and start over. The blood of Christ poured out is the life of Christ laid down. It's His life in place of ours, and it's all or nothing. There's no way any of us could need it more or less than anyone else. 
John doesn't pull his punches here. Um, oh, let me let me say this. Uh, Luke's gospel uh, tells us that Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin council did not simply send Jesus with their temple soldiers to be given over to Pilate for trial. Luke 23.1 says the whole body of them, meaning all of the chief priests and scribes that made up that Sanhedrin council, arose and brought him to Pilate. They were all there. John doesn't pull his punches. He starts in verse 28 by immediately exposing the grievous hypocrisy of those men for all to behold. He says, they themselves did not enter into the praetorium in order that they might not be defiled, but might eat the Passover, the second evening of unleavened bread. The irony and the hypocrisy here are thick enough to cut with a knife. (laughs) When we view this in light of all that God had revealed about Jesus through the prophets, all that these men should have known very well, Their actions here were tantamount to carting a portrait of a great king around on a skillfully constructed carriage surrounded by soldiers to protect that portrait from every possible threat while you're dragging the king whose image is in the portrait by a rope through the mud attached to the cart. See, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were a picture graciously given by God to Israel, and that picture was all about Jesus. The Passover observance looked back as it looked forward. It looked back to the last of ten mighty plagues that God poured out on Egypt in order to redeem Israel out of 400 years of slavery to that pagan nation. On the night before the same morning in the same month recorded by John, but 1,500 years earlier at twilight, God had instructed every household among the still enslaved Israelites to slay a spotless lamb as a sacrifice to Him and to smear the blood of that lamb over the sides and the top of the entrance to every tent and every household. At midnight that night, Yahweh declared that He would pass through the whole land of Egypt and would take the life of every firstborn male among both man and beast throughout the entire kingdom of Egypt, except for those whose dwelling places were covered by the blood of the Lamb. Those He would pass over. God promised that the blood of the Passover lamb would save the firstborn of all of those households from His wrathful judgment. From that night on the 14th of the month until one week later on the 21st of the month, God told the Israelites to eat no leavened bread, but only unleavened. At midnight that night, God did exactly as He had told Israel. Firstborn males throughout Egypt died, including the firstborn son of Pharaoh. But none of the firstborn in the dwellings covered by the blood died. And the next day, the people of Israel walked out of Egypt as a people redeemed by their mighty God. 
The Passover looked back to that miraculous deliverance, but it also looked forward to a deliverance infinitely more perfect and infinitely more complete. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul declares that Christ is our Passover. The Passover lamb in the Old Testament was a picture, a foreshadowing of the true Lamb of God whose blood saves to the uttermost. Whose poured out blood saves men, women, and children from the outpouring of the eternal wrath of God and from the tyranny and slavery of sin to live as God's redeemed people with Him forever. In that same passage in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul points out that the unleavened bread represents the sinless purity of that sacrifice of the true Lamb of God. See, the reason that we still use unleavened bread today in the observance of the Lord's Supper is because Jesus used unleavened bread in the first Lord's Supper. And that unleavened bread, the the absence of the impurity of leaven in that bread points to the absence of any impurity in our sacrifice. The one whose blood is represented in the cup. Here on this first Good Friday morning, the Jews were rigidly careful to protect their ceremonial cleanness so they could observe a picture that God had given to their forefathers to point to the man, the God-man, that they had just presented in bonds to a godless man in order that he might perpetrate the greatest act of uncleanness ever committed by human beings. But they wanted to maintain their ceremonial cleanness. They handed over Jesus to a man who had no concept of that picture. But John was just getting started recording the litany of gross hypocrisies committed by the Jews that day. When Pilate asked the Jews to present their accusations against Jesus, they said to him, if this man were not an evildoer, we wouldn't have delivered him to you. Isn't that great? Their own law demanded that they present no fewer than two trustworthy eyewitnesses to testify against a defendant in such a serious case. Mark's Gospel tells that during the the trial of Jesus before Caiaphas earlier, probably in the wee hours of the, of, the, of the morning, late at night or wee hours of the morning, in that trial, the Jewish authorities managed only after considerable effort to find a couple of witnesses to testify against Jesus. But Mark records that their testimony was so inconsistent that it was useless. I think that's why they didn't bother bringing those witnesses before Pilate. Their appeal to Pilate was, Pilate, just take our word for it. If Jesus were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. How's that for devotion to truth and justice? Pilate, clearly exasperated by such a ridiculous demand, said to them, you guys take him yourself and judge him according to your law. But they replied, we are not permitted put anyone to death. Has that ever struck you as a little off? 
There are a couple of things about that statement that bear some attention. First is the obvious fact that the Jews had already decided (laughs) what both the verdict and the sentence had to be in this case. They weren't asking Pilate to weigh the evidence and declare an objective and just verdict. They were demanding a death sentence right up front. The second thing about this statement that I find highly dubious is the truth of the statement itself. It was true that there were strict constraints on the Jewish authorities when it came to executing Jewish criminals who had violated Jewish laws. But for them to say we are not permitted to put anyone to death, as if that applied in every case, was simply not true. You know how I know that? Acts chapter 7. There were provisions in the Roman law that allowed the temple authorities to stone to death anyone who, for instance, brought a Gentile into a part of the temple grounds restricted to Jews. It wasn't long after this that men from the same Sanhedrin council stoned a Jewish Christian named Stephen to death after yet again coercing men to bear false witness against him in their court. And there is no indication that those Jews either feared or suffered any penalty at all from the Roman government for that execution. See, I don't believe for a minute that these men took their case to Pilate because they would have gotten in serious trouble for killing Jesus themselves. Pilate invited them to do exactly that right here in this passage, didn't he? John 19.6, the third time that Pilate said to the Jews that he found no guilt in Jesus, he also said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him. You'll notice he didn't say take him yourselves and stone him to death. Pilate knew full well that the rabbinical law forbade the Jews from using the mode of execution known as crucifixion. But I think by that point, Pilate had come to realize the depth of their seething hatred toward Jesus. See, I think the reason that they had been pushing so hard for Pilate to to pass a death sentence against Jesus was because they were bound and determined that Jesus had to be crucified because stoning was just too easy. Crucifixion was a horrific way to die. Rabbinical law forbade the Jews to use it as a means of execution because it was so terribly brutal and inhumane. Some of the hardiest criminals hung on a cross for most of two days as their legs gradually gave out and their shoulders dislocated and their lungs became starved for oxygen until at last their heart stopped beating. And guys, I'm being very careful to avoid many details that would be more than some in this room could stand to hear. I read one article this week that said our crucifixes, this was a Catholic article, our crucifixes are way too pretty. These self-proclaimed holy men of Israel, these men who were supposed to be faithful representatives and image bearers of the God who declared Himself to be compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. These men hated Jesus with the purest hatred that exists. 
They saw Jesus as an intolerable threat to their place and their nation. They didn't just want Him dead. They wanted Him to suffer before He died as much as it is possible for a man to suffer. After they had finally succeeded in coercing Pilate into passing a sentence of crucifixion against Jesus, it made them furious when Pilate nailed a sign to the cross of Jesus that said, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Pilate, I think, knew that his hands were tied, but he kept messing with them throughout the whole proceeding, repeatedly calling Jesus the King of the Jews in spite of their protest that he was no such thing and their amazing protest that they had no king but Caesar. They hated Caesar. Mark 15.10 says that Pilate did that, that he kept referring to Jesus as King of the Jews because he, he was, quote, aware that the chief priests had delivered Jesus up to him because of envy. They had turned a gangrenous green with envy because of the attention that Jesus had been stealing from them and the authority that Jesus had asserted. Because if He was who He said He was, their jobs were over. Their place and their nation were over. As they understood it if they had only submitted, if they had only believed, if they had only trusted in their King. As for the sign that Pilate placed on Jesus' cross, he simply said to the Jews, what I have written, I have written. Matthew adds a detail that makes the hair stand up on the back of my neck every time I read it. After Pilate finally capitulated to the Jews' demand, to order the crucifixion of Jesus. Pilate literally washed his hands in front of them and he said, see for yourselves that I am innocent of this man's blood. Of course, he wasn't. But listen to the response of the whole crowd of Jews that had been crying out passionately for Jesus' crucifixion. They said, listen to this, they said to Pilate, his blood be on us and on our children. If those words don't make you shudder, I don't know what will. This was the morning after Passover, after the Passover meal. They spoke those words right in the midst of the seven-day remembrance of the miracle by which the blood of the sacrificial lamb provided by God had graciously covered the children, the firstborn sons of Israel, sparing them from the wrathful judgment of God. Now on this very day in Jerusalem, God Himself was about to slay His own Son. He was about to pour out His own beloved Son's life's blood to remove the terrible guilt that we bear before God because of our sin. To save us from His everlasting wrath. Pilate offered to release one of two men on that day, either Jesus or a violent criminal named Barabbas, the Jews chose Barabbas. And as Pilate washed his hands, the Jews said to him, in effect, that's fine, you're absolved. Get on with it. Crucify him. And may the guilt of his shed blood be on us and on our children. Friends, our sin is insanity of the highest order. 
These men were not better than us. They were not worse than us. They were just as condemned as we were. The truth was on trial that Friday morning almost 2,000 years ago, but that wasn't the first time the truth had been on trial in the courts of men. It's been on trial every day since Satan said to Eve, has God really said? Men have been actively, systematically, passionately suppressing the truth and unrighteousness ever since the first sin. And those who have suppressed the truth with the greatest zeal in every generation have been those who claim to care about the God of truth. In the Old Testament, it was not the kings of pagan nations that persecuted and killed the faithful prophets of God for proclaiming the truth of God. In fact, the kings of the pagan nations that God used to, as His instruments of judgment against Israel and Judah generally treated the faithful prophets of God a whole lot better than the Jews did. It wasn't pagans that persecuted and killed the prophets of God. It was Israel's and Judah's own kings and priests and prophets. It was false shepherds killing true shepherds. Moments before the same men who arranged the crucifixion of Jesus stoned Stephen to death in Acts 7, Stephen said this to them. He said, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. That guy was a deacon. He waited on tables. And moments after he made that statement, he was stoned to death by the men that handed Jesus over. Throughout the history of God's dealings with mankind, those who have done the greatest violence to the true worship of God and to the true worshipers of God have been people who claim to be true worshipers of God. Friends, religious zeal and religious activity will not save you. It will condemn you. Religion that puts the credit on you for making yourself acceptable in the eyes of God in any measure at all will make you a more steadfast, more passionate enemy of Christ than you would be if you didn't care at all about being righteous in the eyes of God. But whether you hate Christ or simply dismiss Christ, you are equally condemned all equally condemned until you fall on your knees in humble trust of the only one who can ever make you righteous in the eyes of God. The one whose poured out blood is the only payment that will ever suffice to pay your eternal debt to a perfectly holy God. The Jews who did everything in their power to send Jesus to that cross were no more lost than you and I were and possibly than some in this room are. 
No more lost than anyone in this room who is not trusting the perfect person and atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ alone. Those Jews were just way better informed than most of the people in their day. But good information about Jesus won't save anybody. Only the grace of God that brings a lost sinner to believe that marvelous witness, to trust in Jesus alone. Only that amazing grace will apply the redeeming blood of Jesus Christ to that sinner and bring him into perfect union with Christ forever. Finally, to my brothers and sisters in Christ who are here this morning, there is a critically important takeaway for us. We must always be reminded and we must always be reminding each other that the devices of men are no threat to us at all. Somewhere right around noon on that first Good Friday, Annas and Caiaphas and many other powerful men among the temple authorities in Jerusalem were convinced that they had skillfully manipulated Pontius Pilate into doing their dirty work for them. They were sure that they had brought about the crucifixion of Jesus whom they despised with the most furious hatred because He threatened everything that they held dear. But they were as wrong as wrong gets. See, those men were entirely irrelevant. They were nothing more than instruments in the hand of the very God that they had systematically rejected for so many generations. Peter spelled that out for these same men on the day of Pentecost. A little while after Jesus had returned to His rightful glory, Peter said to them, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through Him in your midst just as you yourselves know, this man, listen, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put Him to death. But God raised Him up again putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for Him to be held in its power. Beloved, it was not men who sent Jesus to that cross. The most powerful men on earth could never even begin to bring about such an outcome. It was not Annas. It was not Caiaphas. It was not Pilate. It was God. See, the word sovereign only applies to one being ever. The one who created everything and who upholds all things by the word of his power. It will never be men who determine your well-being or mine. Not for one single minute of one single day of our lives. God intends for us who are His children to know without a doubt who is sovereign and who is not. Men are not. God is. Period. Bacteria are not. Viruses are not. Cancer is not. Nobody controls our well-being 
or the outcome of any event in our lives except God and God alone. You know how all those viruses and bacteria, you know how those came into the world? God cursed us because we rebelled against God. The true peace, the true well-being that He alone gives to us is not threatened by any created thing. Our well-being, our very life is our union with Jesus Christ and nothing and no one can ever separate us from the incomparable love of God in Jesus. It is well with our souls. It is well with Bobby Harmon's soul. And she knows it. I'm going to close by reading a few verses from Isaiah 50 and 51. Bear with me just another minute. The speaker in the first part of this passage is God's Messiah, Jesus. This was written about 700 years before He came. Isaiah 50, first verses 6 through 10, and then Isaiah 51, 7 to 13. I gave my back to those who strike me, and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting, for the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I am not disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up to each other. Who has a case against me? Let him draw near to me. Behold, the Lord Yahweh helps me. Who is He who condemns me? Behold, they will all wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them. And then God's Messiah goes on to declare that the very same powerful security applies to all who belong to Him by faith. He says, Who is among you that fears Yahweh, that obeys the voice of His servant, that walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of Yahweh and rely on his God. Listen to me. Listen to me, you who know righteousness. The people in whose heart is my law do not fear the reproach of men nor be dismayed at their revilings. For the moth will eat them like a garment and the grub will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever and my salvation to all generations. I, even I, am He who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies and of the Son of Man who is made like grass. That you have forgotten Yahweh your Maker who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. That you fear continually all day long because of the fury of the oppressor as he makes ready to destroy. But where is the fury of the oppressor? Beloved Father, the fury of those who reject you is no threat to you and no threat to us who belong to You by faith in Him. Jesus promised that the world would hate us because it hated Him, but that's no threat to us at all. Because You alone control all blessing and all curse. You alone are sovereign. And You have made us the objects of Your eternal blessing in Jesus Christ. Father, give us the fearlessness of our Savior as we stand in His place in this godless world. 
Remind us always that we were once those would-be oppressors. Rebels against You. Enemies. But we were washed. We were sanctified. We were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. So we now live every day controlled by our gratitude to You in His precious name. Amen.